And it's 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 almost, it's common knowledge for people to assume that governments are made. Um, it's not that elections uh, don't like that people's Alia, votes don't Alia, you have ten matter. seconds. Ten seconds. Okay. Um, so it's not that people's votes don't matter. It's just it's just that you know the military will certainly manipulate the results. Ali Amir Ali, Pakistani political activist and organizer, thank you so much for joining us. Muniza Jahangir, journalist and host of a political talk show on Pakistan's leading news network. That does it for the show. I'm Nermeen Sheikh with Amy Goodman. A happy early birthday to Messiah Rhodes. Democracy Now is produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tar- Rasena, Tammy Voronov, Charina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, and Te Maria Estudio. Thank you so much for joining you. Joining you? Joining me. You are listening to KBOO Portland. I'm Althea Billings, one of the co-hosts of the Friday morning talk show, The Gap. Our show is off this morning, but Tammy and I wish you all well and hope to be back on your radio soon. Now, please enjoy this. listening to KBOO Portland. I'm Althea Billings. The Oregon legislative session began on Monday, February 5th. Lawmakers have just five weeks to address what they hope to accomplish, and one big agenda item is Measure 110, Oregon's drug decriminalization measure. In 2020, voters passed the measure to decriminalize the possession of small amounts of drugs and to redirect cannabis tax dollars toward treatment and recovery services, specifically ones that Medicaid doesn't cover. Now, lawmakers plan to recriminalize the possession of small amounts of drugs in response to public outcry about public drug use. On KBU News In Depth this week, we've been examining the issues, both with what the data says and how funds from the measure are being used in the community. Today, I'm bringing you excerpts of those conversations. Enjoy. I'm speaking with Jeremiah Hayden, reporter at Street Roots, about his latest article. It's called, Our Efforts to Dismantle Measure 110 Premature? The Arrival of COVID-19, Fentanyl, and Rising Housing Costs are Major Factors in Oregon's Opioid Crisis, research shows. Welcome to the show, Jeremiah. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. So we are speaking in the first week of Oregon's short legislative session and drug policy, particularly around Measure 110, is a hot button issue that lawmakers, they want to do something about it. For a little background here at the start, uh, what is Measure 110 and why did voters pass it? Measure 110 was passed by Oregon voters with like 58% of the vote in November of 2020. That was, as many will probably remember, uh, just after a summer of racial justice protests after the police murder of George Floyd. So there was a lot of motivation to change Oregon's drug laws to to help balance out uh, some of the racial disparities in policing. And voters passed this. It decriminalized possession of small amounts of drugs, but the maybe more important aspect of Measure 110 is that it stood up by funding a whole bunch of uh, substance use um, like services um, for people in need after 
50 years of divestment in Oregon. So flashing over to what's happening now in Salem, what is motivating lawmakers to want to change this law? Some people would call this a moral panic. Um, There are compounding crises in Portland that are um, that are being um, there's a lot of news and uh, media articles about what's going on in Portland and that is making its way across the state. This is also not a Portland specific issue. Drug overdoses are up across the state um, and a lot of people uh, need a lot of help in counties all across the state. So elected officials have to um, win elections and so they have to respond to this moral panic and uh, at least appear to be addressing the issues that voters uh, are are perceiving about the state of uh, addiction and public health in Oregon. So on January 22nd, there was a research conference in Salem hosted by RTI International, and they showcased a ton of different research efforts to delve into these impacts of Measure 110. You talk about this in the article. Does their research support the idea that Oregon's drug decriminalization measure caused the fentanyl overdose crisis that we're seeing now? When it comes to fentanyl overdoses and opioid overdoses in Oregon, Oregon follows a very similar trajectory as every other state in the United States when, from the point that fentanyl hit that market. It's a drastic increase when fentanyl hits the market um, as opposed to the opioid crisis that has been going on since 2014 before the introduction of fentanyl. But a few things happened at exactly the same time that don't appear to be um, causation, although they appear to be correlated. Um, COVID-19 and the fallout of COVID-19, there was a 23% rise in homelessness uh, due to COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, and then fentanyl saturating the drug supply starting in 2021, which was just two months, three months after voters uh, voted to decriminalize small amounts of drugs. So right at the same time that drugs were decriminalized, that actually went into effect in 2021, is exactly the same time that fentanyl um, saturated the drug market. They're not, according to these researchers, that's not a cause of drugs being decriminalized. It's somewhat of a coincidence. You spoke to this somewhat, but how does the arrival of fentanyl into a drug market usually go? Because this is something that, while it's relatively new in the West Coast and certainly in Oregon, it's it's had a longer trajectory in other parts of the country, right? Right. Yeah, I was on the East Coast six years before it came to Oregon. And on the East Coast, this is something that relates directly to, you know, recent stories that a lot of people saw about uh, tinfoil and straws. Multnomah County was going to provide tinfoil and straws as harm reduction. Um, the reason for that is on the East Coast, um, there a lot of people are injecting drugs, and that's far more dangerous. It can lead to um, other public health crises like AIDS and HIV. Um, and that was kind of the thing behind the Multnomah County was trying to address, like not having these other public health crises out of the fentanyl crisis. But yeah, drugs are like a lot of other um, supply and demand things, but they need... Um, you know, the drugs need to be transported. They have, it's a system. It doesn't, it didn't just drop on the United States and 50 states all at the same time. 
So it took time for it to get here. Slowly introduced in 2019, and then over that time, it has started to creep up before until now, where um, drugs like you know heroin and you know meth is still um, uh, still used at a pretty high rate. But um, you know, think drugs like heroin and stuff started to fall off, and now it's really um, pretty pervasive in the market. Well, let's talk about the racial component of Measure 110 because the police murder of George Floyd was definitely a motivator in why voters wanted to pass this law in 2020. How does race play in and what have researchers found in that aspect so far? Yeah, I talked to uh, Multnomah County DA Mike Schmidt, who was running for his position at that time, and he said, you know, and, and and he was talking to voters at that time. That was what everybody was talking about. We've got to get rid of these racial disparities in policing. So researchers say that the move to reduce racial disparities in drug-related policing has been a success. Um, the RTI research um, said that found no stat- statistically significant differences by race and ex- ethnicity among people stopped by law enforcement in that last year. Uh, Prior to that, there were, you know, pretty wide gaps um, in, in, in uh, wide racial disparities. So um, according to this um, survey of 468 Oregonians who use drugs, um, people still experience a really high level of interactions with police. 60%, 66% of people said that they uh, reported still being stopped by law enforcement, and 47% said that of those stops said that um, law enforcement still sees drugs. So there's still a lot of uh, disparity in policing, but the um, the racial impacts of that are uh, at least at least appear to be balancing out. Well, some Oregon lawmakers have pointed to a need for criminalization because people need a motivator in order to seek treatment. Is there evidence to support that claim? Some people can find success through programs that are offered within a carceral system. Sure. People end up in jail, and they're in there for a period of time. I've spoken to people where this was a, a thing that worked for them. As far as that actually being something that compels people, there appears to be little evidence that criminal penalties actually motivate people to seek treatment. A study of those nearly 500 drug users in Oregon found that 13% of the respondents knew that possession of small amounts of drugs were legal in Portland. 13% knew that meth was legal, and just 7% knew that fentanyl was legal. So this idea that people are altering how they, you know, monitor their own addiction to substances based on those external consequences is, is a bit of a fantasy. It's not really what the data says. In considering a recriminalization, right, that is going to be something that increases contact between people who are using drugs and the carceral system. What kind of impact does jail time have for people who have substance use disorder? Yeah, jail can lead to all kinds of different things. Um, It can, in many ways, lead to homelessness, one of the things that a lot of people are talking about when it comes to public drug use. People end up in jail, they end up losing a job, not being, you know, because these things are, we're talking about a class C misdemeanor, which is a small thing that uh, some people, that some legislators are talking about putting back into this. There's also a proposal from Republicans for it to be a Class A misdemeanor, which is uh, much more serious. But but these things can lead, you know, if somebody misses a um, court date or whatever, these can actually, like, can really move up to parole violations and end up, you know, being felonies, which can lead to evictions, 
Um, it can lead to people not being able to uh, get into housing once they are released. And one of the most um, kind of heartbreaking things, um, you know, that I heard at this from, from the researchers is that people are twice as likely to overdose when they come out of jail um, or if, if they come out of jail than the, than the general uh, population of, of drug users. So um, due to the, the potency of the drugs and coming off of drugs can, can be really devastating for people. Well, you alluded to some of the impacts that, that jail can have, particularly on the ability to access housing and right much of this public outcry about drug use can be connected to the fact that homelessness is visible and that leads to visible public drug use as well. How does homelessness play into this crisis that we're seeing and and how lawmakers want to address it? It seems to be a huge factor. Um, there, there are a lot of misconceptions about substance use and homelessness. And it's worth acknowledging that it's true that substance use disorder is high among people experiencing homelessness. 16% of people surveyed in the 2022 national pit count um, said that they like reported a substance use disorder, and that's 26% in the 2023 uh, Portland Tri-County point-in-time count. Um, so it's not that people who are um, homeless don't use drugs. That does happen, of course, as does the general population use drugs. But the visibility aspect of this is really important because you just see people who are not inside homes who are using drugs, but we don't necessarily have any way of seeing people who are using drugs inside their home. So the moral panic comes out of seeing people in public view. As homelessness increases, so then does public drug use. Um, you know, not to mention the negative mental health impacts of you know people surviving without shelter. So I think this is an important place to note that the um, annual point in time count just came out and, and showed that homelessness in Oregon rose eight and a half percent to 20,000 people um, in 2023. And 65% of those, which is 13,000 people, were unsheltered. So that's the second highest rate of unsheltered homelessness in the United States, according to Marisa Zapata from the Homelessness Research and Action Collaborative at Portland State. Um, so there is this, there is this uh, research shows there's a relationship between substance use disorder and homelessness, but Zapata says that the relationship is bidirectional rather than substance use being the cause of homelessness. Thank you for that. As you mentioned earlier, you interviewed Multnomah County DA Mike Schmidt for this article. I'm wondering if you could read his, his final quote in your piece. Yeah. Mike Schmidt um, said, you know, that he um, does support public use bans and deflection programs. The deflection program thing is extremely complicated after looking at a um, flowchart of how this might work. Um, but he said, you know, leaders, particularly specifically elected leaders, are tasked with finding a balance between the public's moral outrage and the data that's suggesting, really the data is suggesting it's too early to roll back the promises of measure 110. But Schmidt said, we do have to be cautious and study things here locally, but we should be guided by research and then actual outcomes and not as much just, you know, vibes. It's a good quote. Thank you. Yeah. What do you hope folks take away from this story? This is really complicated. And one of the most complicated things about it is that patience is really key here. 
researchers who have studied these things for uh, decades. One in particular who I talked to, Alex Crawl, who studied for 30 years, um, and he's an epidemiologist, said, you know, you would never think about, in criminology, you would never think about what happened for six months. Even two years is really early for data. He said even five, 10, or 20 years is pretty early data to be able to even tell what is really going on here. Um, there are, it's, it's a bit devastating to see such a, so many uh, promising things coming out of this while at the same time elected leaders, some of them are being genuine, some are some really disingenuous arguments uh, to get more police power um, or, or, or more power in office. Um, but seeing those things kind of fail um, based on perception and, and a lack of um, you know, paying attention to details um, is a real bummer because it's not going to have the impact that I think a lot of people are expecting in recriminalizing, and in fact, it might have pretty adverse effects. So there will have to be something else to scapegoat later. If listeners want to read your piece for themselves, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, the best way to get Street Roots is to buy one from a vendor. They're um, in your neighborhood. Um, they accept cash, Venmo, and they accept tips. You can also find us at streetroots.org. And I don't say this too often, but I do hope that people go and read this story because I think there's a lot um, there's a lot going on here, and, and it's really important. Do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up? I really appreciate you having me. Thank you. Thanks, Jeremiah. That was Jeremiah Hayden, reporter at Street Roots, speaking with me about his latest article. It's called, Our Efforts to Dismantle Measure 110 Premature? The arrival of COVID-19, fentanyl, and rising housing costs are major factors in Oregon's opioid crisis, research shows. February 5th is the first day of Oregon's short legislative session, and it's a pivotal moment for drug policy. Lawmakers are poised to recriminalize possession of drugs, undoing a critical part of the voter-passed Measure 110. But drug decriminalization is only a part of what that measure did. It also redirected cannabis tax dollars toward a continuum of care for people with substance use disorder. The funds have gone towards hundreds of organizations across the state to ramp up their efforts. One of those organizations is Iron Tribe Network, a peer-run nonprofit that provides recovery housing, family reunification, and peer support. I spoke with their director of operations, Melly Rose, to learn more about what they do. How did Iron Tribe Network get started? Oh, that's a great story. Um, Iron Tribe Network started with two individuals. They were on their way to prison. Um, they had both been to prison before and wanted to do something different with their life. Um, and they started in gathering like-minded individuals while they were in prison that wanted to do something different when they got out. And so when they were released to the streets, you know, they started banding together and just naturally doing peer support. Before peer support was a real big thing. Um, going to NA or AA meetings together, just banding together. And in the early days, you know, we didn't have any contracts, we didn't have anything, we just gathered together and one of our members uh, relapsed and we lived in, all lived in subsidized housing and had nowhere to take him and walked the streets with him that evening to keep him safe and just were like, we really need a recovery house, an Iron Tribe house. And, and that's how, you know, the progression started and that's how we were born. Mm -hmm. Can you describe what peer support is? 
for people who may not have encountered it before? So peer support is um, individuals with lived experience. So for us, that's people that have experienced um, addictions, have experienced, you know, the loss of family, um, going to prison or jail, you know, people with experience of doing that and getting out on the other side. And so by being a peer, being someone who's experienced that, we are best best to help somebody get out of that and, and know the avenues and the ways. And so our peer support, we originally weren't trying to be different, but we are family recovery housing. We're not gender specific like some other organizations. And that just started when we finally got our first house. It was going to be a men's house like all the other organizations do. But then a sister showed up with her son and well, they were like, well, let her stay here until we open the women's house. And by the time we were able to open the women's house, you know, other women had moved in and it just organically became this family house. And that's how we became that. And our peer support has moved towards, you know, people get out of prison. Originally, we were just trying to help people not go back to prison. But now we realize when you get out, you want to get back together with family. You know, you want to kids returned. Um, and so we focus on family reunification. And what are some of the ways, like, how does peer support show up? Where are there kind of, are there events? What does that look like for folks doing the work? Uh, for folks doing the work, they meet people wherever they're at. And that could be somebody that is living on the street, somebody that's just getting out of an inpatient treatment center or a detox. And uh, we get to meet them where they're at and see what they need. Sometimes we just focus on basic needs and sometimes we focus on walking through the justice system or child welfare system. Um, each individual person has different needs, but our overarching goal is to get back to self-sustainability. Mm-hmm. So you touched on the two of the main services that Iron Tribe Network offers, the peer support and the housing. How do those kind of fit together? So to be able to have a safe place to live is really the foundation of being able to start all over again. You know, it's hard to hold down a job when you aren't staying somewhere that's safe. It's hard to work on getting your children back when you don't have a safe place for them to go. And so... People come into our housing, it's clean and sober housing. There's um, checks and balances so that it is remains clean and sober ha- housing. And they work on their goals of getting their job or getting going back to school or all the things they need. And so having a peer walk through them with that and having a safe place to go at night um, that they can have their family at is where they intersect. Mm-hmm. Well, Iron Tribe Network received funding from Measure 110 through the Behavioral Health Resource Network Allocation, or BURN funding, it's sometimes called. What was the process like for getting those funds, and what has it allowed your organization to do? So our organization applied in four counties, Multnomah, Marion, Columbia, and Clatsop. Um, And in all those counties, except for Clatsop, we applied for peer support dollars and housing dollars. Um, And we've received a grant in each one of those counties. Um, And what we've done with that is we've, in three of those counties, we've purchased homes. Um, And so people get to go there from, if they're coming out of treatment or they're coming, they can come from anywhere. There's no wrong door. Um, And they get to stay there for up to six months while they work on what they need to get back to self-sustainability. They get a peer and um, they work on goals. And then we make sure that they have somewhere to go when they're done. I'm not just like six months is up and you kick them to the curb. You know, this whole time we've been working on it and they have, we were able to find places for them to go before their six months is up. You know, the issue with that is, is the house fills up really fast. We instantly had long wait lists. And so the need for recovery housing is great. Mm-hmm. 
how have you seen your work or maybe more broadly the work in your field change as a result of Measure 110? Oh, the opportunity for those that have nothing um, has increased. You know, before when, say, a community partner that does peer support would call or a shelter would call and they're like, I have this family or this individual that needs housing. Well, my first question is be like, well, where's their funding coming from? Do they have the ability to pay rent? And they're like, well, no. Um, so they would have to stay in the shelter or stay somewhere until they could figure that out. But with the Measure 110, it is at no cost to the individuals that stay there. And so we're able to help them immediately. And then we also are able to provide basic needs for them, um, bedding and it's furnished and things that we weren't able to do before. Um, and it's helping people that couldn't get help before um, and giving us time to find other resources or getting them jobs or get, you know giving them time that they didn't have before. And so it's a really, really great thing. In terms of like the housing that you offered prior to 110 and then now, what does the difference look like there? So peer support, um, because we're not a medical entity, so we're unable to bill Medicaid for peer support. So we need to have funding for that. We didn't have any funding to cover the peer support. We would just kind of naturally do it and help people out when they would have a relapse. But we weren't able to do the full spectrum of peer support without funding for the peers. And so with the Measure 110, we were able to hire peers. And and that's another thing that's different. And it's been really great because we've always known peer services work hand in hand with housing, but we never were funded for that except for with our child welfare programs. And those are only for child welfare individuals. Now we're able to serve everybody. Mm -hmm. Are there aspects of your work that you find are misunderstood? Yeah, recovery housing in general is misunderstood. Um, One of the things that we run into regularly when we're trying to expand or open new houses is NIMBY, you know, not in my backyard. People think that there's this drug house moving into their neighborhood and it's gonna be dangerous for their families and it couldn't be more opposite. We have good neighbor policies. We are excellent uh, tenants and neighbors. Everyone in our house is clean and sober. If they're not, they're they're being located somewhere where they can get help. Um, And we're always quick to take the neighbor's garbage back up to their house for them. We just wanna be good neighbors because we were never been able to be good neighbors before. And so we take a lot of pride in our houses, but the neighborhoods, they have a lot of fear and uh, they, can be really mean about us not being in their neighborhoods and that's a shame where they'll say we like what you do but I wish you would do it somewhere else and that's not fair I think our people should be able to recover in any neighborhood mm-hmm. are folks generally able to stay in the the vicinity of where they've been in in getting recovery housing or is it oftentimes well because of because area? of NIMBY sometimes uh, we tend to get a house sometimes on the outskirts so, cause we still just try, trying not to cause any waves. We just want to help the people. Um, and so sometimes we have to be farther out or in a neighborhood that isn't as nice. And sometimes uh, we, we've learned to avoid uh, homeowners associations. <laughs> they don't like us at all. So um, not always, you know, sometimes somebody might want Happy Valley, but you know, they gotta be in Southeast. Right. Have I mean, with what you're saying, with trying to be a good neighbor, have any of those relationships improved over time as, as people many, get to experience it? Yeah, many of our neighbors, you know, were very reluctant at first, and then now they would say that we're good neighbors. We've brought them to meetings. We've tried to 
many different ways to introduce ourselves to neighborhoods and no matter which way we do it we're not received well and it's just like well you're just gonna have to wait and see and it in we're good neighbors and they see that but sometimes it takes time and they get very upset in the meantime and that's a bummer and that's where we're misunderstood Mm -hmm. what do you wish people knew about your work either about peer mentorship about housing being a housing provider what do you wish people knew it works Um, There was a study done on Oxford housing that said if someone stays in recovery housing for up to a year, they have a 77% chance of maintaining their sobriety. Um, It is the continuum of housing. There's a lot of dollars that go into housing first, which is a great model, but sometimes recovery housing is overlooked and it is part of the continuum. Um, you know, getting into detox, doing the inpatient treatment, and then spending some time in recovery housing, and then back to self-sustainability, their own apartment, their own place. Um, They've got to help. They need help getting the foundations they need to be able to live. Mm -hmm. What are some barriers that your organization is is facing now? Barriers that we run into um, is just expanding, finding, you know, finding more homes. Now we rent most of our homes, and the increase in rent every year, you know, we, we like to try to keep our rooms, if they're not subsidized through a program, we like to keep them at a low cost for folks so they can, you know, they can get out of the housing. They're there and they can still save and they can still, you know, work on getting their own place. We've had multiple people come through our housing and stay there for a few years and saved up enough for a down payment for a house. Um, you know, that it works. Recovery housing works. And if you're able to pair, pair it with peer support and ideally pair it with funding to, so they don't have to pay for a while in the beginning um, is really a success. Mm-hmm. If listeners are interested in learning more about Iron Tribe Network or what we've talked about today, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, you can go to our website at uh, www.irontribenetwork.org. Wonderful. Do you have resources that you recommend to folks if they're interested in just learning more about peer mentorship, recovery housing, understanding the issue better? Um, they're welcome to call. It really depends. I mean, each each neighborhood, each county, each city has different you know resources available for those individuals. But what I would like to say to people is, if you have a family member out there that's suffering, there's help for them. Um, sometimes they need a peer to help them even get into treatment. You know, someone that speaks their language and helps them navigate the process of getting on wait lists because in Oregon it's not that easy to get into inpatient treatment. So sometimes they need help, and that's where peers come in. Mm-hmm. Do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up? No. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about Iron Tribe Network. I really appreciate it. Thanks. That was Melly Rose, Director of Operations at Iron Tribe Network, a peer-run nonprofit that provides recovery housing, family reunification, and peer support. They're one of the organizations funded by dollars from Measure 110, the Drug Decriminalization and Treatment Measure in Oregon. Oregon lawmakers are back in Salem for the next five weeks for the short legislative session. Their priorities include housing, homelessness, and Measure 110, Oregon's drug decriminalization measure. It was passed by voters in 2020, and it decriminalizes the possession of small amounts of drugs and redirects cannabis tax dollars to fund addiction recovery services, something that has been underinvested in in Oregon historically. 
Lawmakers announced plans to recriminalize the possession of small amounts of drugs after major public outcry about public drug use that is tied to the dual crisis of housing and homelessness. But the question of what impact did Measure 110 have on Oregon is not necessarily a matter of personal opinion. It's a question of scientific inquiry, one that many researchers have taken up in the past four years. On January 22nd, RTI International hosted a research symposium in Salem, bringing together researchers from different disciplines who've examined Measure 110 and the funding it's brought to treatment programs. Morgan Godwin of the Alcohol Drug Policy Commission of Oregon and Northeastern University was one of those researchers. Her presentation was called Oregonians' Experience of Overdose, How Risk is Shaped by Personal Characteristics, External Factors, and Naloxone. She and other researchers described a survey they conducted of 468 people who used drugs across eight counties in Oregon. The findings have important implications for how lawmakers might change Measure 110. I caught up with Morgan to learn more. So in 2023, you worked on a really remarkable quantitative and qualitative survey of people who use drugs in Oregon. You found some really interesting stuff I want us to talk about. What did this study uncover about which drugs folks are using the most? Meth, hands down, is the most used drug in Oregon. It was shocking to me. Um, and then fentanyl's pretty common too. About so, ninety-two, ninety-three percent of people had used meth in the last thirty days. And what's the number for fentanyl? Do you have it pulled up? I do. It's fifty-three. Fifty-three percent had used fentanyl in the last thirty days. Um, you know, which is still a lot, but woof! Do a lot of people use meth? <laughs> And then, you know, we broke it down to the frequency of use, too, in various ways. And, you know, a solid half of all the people who use fentanyl daily also use methamphetamine daily. So we also saw a lot of what's called polysubstance use, so co-use of meth and fentanyl. And that's something we already suspected because in the toxicology reports in drug overdose deaths, it's increasingly common that people have both fentanyl and methamphetamine in their system. So from the study, what were some characteristics that you found to be more common among fentanyl or meth users? So meth users tended to be slightly older than fentanyl users, and they were much, much more likely to report having a disability. Uh, and we didn't define that. that it was just a self-reported question, do you have a disability? Fentanyl users were more likely to be homeless and were on average seven years younger than meth users. But then when it comes to some other questions on the survey, like how many overdoses have you witnessed in the last 12 months, uh, the number with fentanyl users was off the charts at, an, at a median of eight witnessed overdoses. Um, in the past 30 days, and meth users had a median of four witnessed opioid overdoses in the last 30 days. Yeah, the overdose data in particular is is very interesting, both of how many folks might have experienced based on which drug they used and how mm -hmm. many they may have witnessed based on which, which drug they used the most. Yeah, of all the fentanyl users we talked to, you know, they'd averaged 
three non-fatal overdoses in their lifetime. That's a lot. They're lucky to be alive, uh, but they were able to be found and revived. So that's another thing that we saw asking those overdose questions was that in the community, uh, people are administering naloxone very frequently and are reversing non-fatal overdoses within their community. Yeah, naloxone or Narcan is. Uh, I, I was definitely surprised by by the numbers that were that were found in this about how often folks are are using it. Uh, you found that seventy one percent of participants had at least one dose of naloxone. Mm-hmm. Which is that's actually quite high. That is impressively high. Oregon was a fairly early adopter of harm reduction interventions. And when we look at that statistic, it indicates that we're doing a decent job getting naloxone into the hands of people who actually need it, who will actually use it. You know, there's very different and sometimes conflicting ideas on how naloxone should be distributed. But when we looked into that data, you know, if fentanyl over fentanyl users are witnessing eight overdoses a year on average, they are very clearly the priority population. And another interesting thing that came out there was fentanyl users were much, much more likely to administer naloxone than meth users. So meth users are seeing about half the number of overdoses that fentanyl users are, but they're administering naloxone like a a tenth of the time. Meth users, it was uh, 6% of what overdoses they witnessed, they administered naloxone, and for fentanyl users, it was 60%. They personally administered naloxone. That's not even counting if someone else during the overdose administered naloxone. What was the attitude that folks had towards the idea of calling paramedics or calling 911 uh, witnessing an overdose? We heard pretty broad trepidation when it comes to calling 911, uh, especially people on, and this came up in the qualitative. So we did the quantitative interview with 468 people and then also did a deep dive, open-ended qualitative interview with 32 of those folks. And especially people on community supervision, uh, probation or post-prison supervision, they experienced or they expressed extreme trepidation when it comes to calling 911. And then there was also this notion that, um, and we heard this in the rural areas, that if you were to rely on first responders, they can sometimes take 15, 20 minutes to respond. And if they had waited that long, that the person probably would have died. And so they're able to administer naloxone essentially immediately and get that person returning to breathing uh, very quickly. And then the other thing we heard was, especially fentanyl users know how to respond to overdoses and they feel comfortable doing that themselves, that they have Narcan, that Narcan works, And so that's something they're able to manage amongst themselves. But if for whatever reason they cannot, they don't have naloxone, the person's not waking up, they will call 911. I mean, we did hear plenty of people 
that did call 911, but it's sort of like a option of last resort. Well, the survey also looked at overdose risk factors, things that make it more likely that someone will overdose. Can you talk me through some of those? Yeah, the most salient finding there was if the person reported being incarcerated in the past 12 months, gone to jail at all for any length of time, they were twice as likely to report having overdosed. And then that relationship was dose dependent. So the more episodes of incarceration they experienced, the more likely they were to have overdosed. And that's something that has been shown in in peer-reviewed studies across the country for quite a long time now. Um, And it was even shown in a study out of the Oregon prison system. But this is the first time we have hard data here in Oregon that shows if you go to jail, not prison, not you were gone for two years, but if you go to jail, even just for two or three nights, that is doubling your risk of drug overdose. That's that's pretty significant considering what Oregon lawmakers are considering doing, which would be recriminalizing the possession of things like fentanyl. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, we know that incarceration doubles the risk of overdose. So, therefore, if, if we are considering returning people to jail for their substance use, that is an overdose risk factor, full stop. And that's borne out by not just our survey, but data all across the country. So if anyone is to contest that, it's fairly disingenuous. Well, the survey in the qualitative section, I believe, and correct me on that if I'm wrong, uh, but also looked at the policing of people using drugs, which is particularly important, right, as the Oregon legislature is considering recriminalizing possession of drugs. And one of the express goals of Measure 110 was to reduce interactions with police. From the survey, is that something that's happening for folks? So the population we spoke to, which were predominantly homeless, people using drugs, they're still having a phenomenal amount of police contact. About two-thirds of that population had been stopped by the police in the last 12 months. Um, More than half had been searched by the police. I think it was 43% had had their uh, drugs confiscated by the police in the past year. And that's under decriminalization. Um, So this notion that under decriminalization, uh, police are having no contact with these people and it's just running amok, that does not seem to be borne out by the data because there's many other reasons that police are coming into contact with people. In the qualitative interviews, most often people reported feeling persecuted or experiencing harassment by the police because they were homeless. Uh, So we heard things about like, oh, I look unshowered and I have a backpack and that makes me a target. Right. Well, housing and homelessness are issues that are tied up in this. They get tied up in this. And there's a prevalent idea out there right now that people may have even moved to Oregon in order to do drugs under our decriminalized Uh system. (laughs) What is your data set? What did you find about that kind of claim? (laughs) Um, That is probably one of our strongest findings that debunks the common narrative. Uh, The average length of time 
a survey respondent had lived in Oregon 21 years. The average age was 40. So that means, you know, on average, people have lived in Oregon more than half of their life and more than 20 years. Uh, I believe it was something like 75, 72% had lived uh, in the region where we found them for more than 10 years. And uh, only 8% of people that we talked to moved here since February 1st, 2021, 8%. So 92% of everyone we talked to, drug users experiencing homelessness, uh, were essentially long-time Oregonians. This is kind of a related aspect, but I recall there also being a pretty significant portion had started doing drugs far before Measure 110 was enacted. Yeah, that's right. That's another. <laughs> that one's even better. 98.5% of everyone we spoke to began using drugs prior to February 1st. 2021. The average length of time that people had been using, 21 years, so more than two decades. And again, their average age was 40. Um, you know, there's going to be outliers on both ends, but if we think about what that average looks like, it means they started using drugs about 19, and they're now 40 years old. Well, there's another claim floating around that I'd love to get your input on from a scientific perspective, right? People have claimed that fentanyl came to Oregon as a result of Measure 110. Is that something that is supported by the available data? That is not supported by the data. Uh, fentanyl came to the West Coast several years after it appeared on the East Coast. Uh, we actually had quite a bit of time to prepare for the arrival of fentanyl because drug policy experts were calling it an inevitability. It's fully synthetic. It doesn't require poppies. It allows for vertical integration. Um, and the market was moving towards fentanyl. Uh, but the West Coast here, the I-5 corridor, was effectively black tar heroin's last stand. Uh, but then with the COVID-19 related uh, lockdowns and border shutdowns, very quickly we tipped from being a total heroin market into being a total fentanyl market. And Oregon mirrored all of the West Coast states um, in that. And then if we just dig into that notion a little bit deeper, our population is about 4 million. Washington's like seven and a half and then California's 40 million so just among the I-5 corridor just these three states we're only eight percent of the population we don't have the purchasing power to influence cartel decisions but when we look at overdose mortality comparing Oregon to Washington, California, Nevada, we see that we are exactly on par with the rest of the market. And ha essentially fentanyl was introduced at the same time, which caused these very predictable spikes in our overdose mortality. But there's absolutely nothing unique about Oregon. In fact, and unfortunately, the state of Washington has experienced even higher year-over-year year increases in drug overdose than Oregon has. But I just want to stop right there. 
hearkening back to the conversation about people administering naloxone and there being a huge number of non-fatal overdoses, we rank about 25 in the country for our overdose rate. So there are half the states in the country have a higher overdose rate than we do. And I think people forget that. They hear this um, very doom and gloom narrative and they assume that we have you know, one of the highest overdose rates in the country. And that is absolutely not true. We saw some of the highest year-over-year spikes, yes, because that, unlike the East Coast, let's pick on Vermont for a second, when they first got fentanyl in their drug supply, it was a cut in the heroin. It was an adulterant in the heroin. But heroin was still hanging out for several years, for four or five years, as fentanyl slowly usurped heroin because that's not what happened here. For within the span of 12 months, we went from a total heroin to a total fentanyl market. We saw these pretty dramatic year-over-year jumps in one year, the same as what Vermont experienced over about four years. But that's really just looking at what percent of our opioid market was fentanyl. Because when it reached, you know, seven, we reached... 70% fentanyl, super fast. It took Vermont about four years to reach that. We had the same increase in overdose in one year that Vermont had in about four years. Hope that made sense. It does, it does. Bear with me with the numbers here. <laughs> what do you hope Oregonians and people you know, outside of the state looking in at Measure 110, at this kind of experiment, what do you hope that they take away from this study and the research more generally? I hope that they take away that of all the various potential harms that people have suggested that Measure 110 has caused, not a single one is borne out by the data. And borne out in our data is that people are still being heavily policed despite the fact drugs are decriminalized, that there is a doubling of overdose risk if people are incarcerated at all and then if we look at data from across the country there are just undeniable indisputable harms that come along with incarceration when you hear people in Oregon say that we need to criminalize drugs because it's a pathway to recovery that is another part um, that was presented at the symposium that just had my jaw on the floor you know, out of 300, more than 300,000 Oregonians that are estimated to have an illicit substance use disorder, at the most, at any given time, 1,300 were in drug court. And from the public records request that I pulled for Multnomah County's stop court, drug possession court, the highest graduation rate was 30%. So essentially, we are talking about a pathway to recovery in any given year that for about 300 people, that's endangering 300,000 people with the risk of arrest, which is proven to be harmful. We're sometimes talking about these things as if it were an ideological debate uh, when there's science here. And we are debating things that are not debatable. These things are 
It's a closed case. Science has spoken. The rate of substance use arrest in a state does not influence positively or negatively the rate of substance use in that state. So the rate of arrest is not correlated to the rate of substance use. Same goes for drug overdose. You know, West Virginia continues to have the highest drug overdose rate in the country. They very much send people to jail. No one's accusing West Virginia of being soft on crime. And so I would just really want people to look at the data, but I understand the frustration. The state of affairs is not okay. I am sick of burying my friends. So this is an all hands on deck moment. But are we going to return to the same strategies of the past just because they're familiar, even though we know they have failed? instead of truly seeking solutions that might work here. And another note, you know, the public drug use does not come from decriminalization necessarily. I traveled to Portugal twice. Public drug use was very rare there. Same with Spain, same with Uruguay. These are places I've gone to that have drug decriminalization. But here, we have such high rates of homelessness where people just don't have an alternative. And we're going to criminalize public drug use instead of giving them a better alternative. I believe very strongly that when you give people better options, they make better choices. And um, we're not so great at giving people better options. From the data, did you find any results that that point towards recommendations or actions that could be taken? I mean, obviously, we've discussed that recriminalization is not supported as something that would make a difference and and would push the needle in the right direction. But were there things in the data that you found that that could? Accessing syringe exchanges uh, increased people's likelihood of having naloxone by about 30%. So that is a tried and true intervention that we've now proved right here in Oregon uh, could reduce the overdose deaths. So funding and supporting uh, syringe exchanges, which is a little funny now because since fentanyl came, the amount of people who use injection drug use has gone down a lot, actually. Only 13.5% of fentanyl users reported having injected. Uh, Most people are smoking, so they're not quite as likely to access a syringe exchange And so really trying to find ways to reach that population, the people who are smoking fentanyl instead of shooting it. Because, you know, over the summer, the past summer, the county was going to start handing out safe smoking kits. It's like tinfoil and straws. It's nothing you can't get at Fred Meyer. But the goal was just to bring them into the facility and connect them to services because we know that once people engage with harm reduction, they become about twice as likely to engage with treatment uh, within 12 months. And that aside, that's how we distribute naloxone. I mean, it was primarily through syringe exchanges because that's how we were reaching active users. But if people aren't using syringes anymore, how do we still reach those people? And so one of the recommendations 
was to absolutely get naloxone in the hands of fentanyl users, support syringe, syringe exchanges, look for other creative ways to reach uh, people who smoke, train methamphetamine users and how to respond to overdoses, because even though they're witnessing quite a few, they're very unlikely uh, to administer naloxone. And then beyond that, I mean, extrapolate what you will out of the fact that incarceration dramatically increases the risk of overdose, that people are still being policed, that because people are still being policed, they're quite hesitant to call 911. Um, You know, we are not making political statements, but I can just show you the data and hope that you implement policy that follows that data. So there's been, and I don't know if you have the answer to this question, so if you don't, don't worry about it, but there's all of this sort of talk about right the overdose rate which you kind of debunked as being as being special in a way but sort of holding measure 110 to this level of it it was supposed to reduce overdose deaths do you recall if that was one of its selling points at the time because i don't i don't think that was said i mean i think we were like the the nation is in an overdose crisis we must act now we must stop repeating the failed strategies of the past because we're in an overdose crisis. Now, I mean, in a perfect world, Measure 110 would have reduced overdose deaths, but because we got fentanyl at the same time, there's absolutely no way to disentangle the effects of, of fentanyl um, from what happened. The best we can hope for at this point is that our overdose rate goes up less because unfortunately we know that once fentanyl hits uh, a region the overdose rate tends to go up for seven or eight years after that so if organs hold holds true to that unfortunately we still have four years left of watching our overdose rate climb so essentially no amount of public policy can counteract the effects of fentanyl. Right. And then combine that with the fact that Oregon's treatment and recovery services pre-110 were so extremely lackluster, to put it mildly. And, you know, I don't want to sugarcoat this. Our access to services is still abysmal. So far, Measure 110 funds have gone through one grant funding round, okay, one round of standing up behavioral health resource networks in all 36 counties in the state. One single round of grant funding cannot possibly undo decades of divestment and disregard. So we have some more services now, but because we were next to last in the country, we're still towards the bottom of the pack. We cannot rely on Measure 110 to fix all of our problems, especially considering that drug use is intersecting with various cascading social problems, especially housing, an affordable housing crisis. Do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up? Now is the time to act. You know, I get it. People are so frustrated. They're going to their legislators and they're saying, do something, do something about this. It's not acceptable. And legislators are doing almost 
the only thing that they have under their direct control, which is to amend the criminal law. But doing something is not the same as doing something effective. Well, Morgan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. That was Morgan Godvin with the Alcohol and Drug Policy Commission of Oregon and Northeastern University, speaking with me about her research on Measure 110. Godvin was part of a team that surveyed nearly 500 people who use drugs across Oregon. State lawmakers are currently considering House Bill 4002 to recriminalize possession of drugs, undoing one major facet of the voter-passed Measure 110. You've been tuned in to a Measure 110 Deep Dive here on KBU Community Radio. These interviews originally aired during KBU News In-Depth, the interview portion of the volunteer news program that airs from 5.30 to 6, Monday through Thursday. For KBU, I'm Althea Billings. Thanks for listening. listening to KBOO Portland. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. The Finance Committee meets on the third Thursday of the month at 5.30 p.m. This month's meeting will be held online through a public video conference. A public link and phone number to attend the meeting can be found at our website at kboo.fm. Please visit our website to verify if a meeting is being held. Tune in to